James chapter 4. In our last chapter, in chapter 3, we left off looking at a contrast between two different forms of wisdom. He said, who is wise and endued with knowledge among you? And he said, let him show it or demonstrate it out of a lifestyle of good works and faith and let him show it with a meekness of wisdom. And then following that call to demonstrate what we truly are through our works and our wisdom, he gives a contrast of two different types of wisdom. He first describes a worldly wisdom that has its root or its uh, base or beginning in, in envy, in jealousy, in selfish ambition, or things that are completely uh, self-absorbed, things that completely benefit myself. And he, and he talks about the wisdom that's motivated or that is, is grown from that place of just, I'm jealous of somebody, I'm looking out for numero uno, and so the decisions that I make in my life are going to reflect what's best for me. That's the first wisdom. And he says that the outcome of that wisdom is that it's an earthly wisdom, it's a sensual or fleshly wisdom, and it's devilish. It comes from the pit of hell, and the result of it is that there's going to be confusion in my life, and every evil work is going to follow. So I'm going to constantly uh, be frustrated, I'm going to constantly be confused if I'm following a worldly wisdom. And then he talks about a godly wisdom as he closes out the chapter. He says there's a different type of wisdom. He says there's a wisdom that comes from heaven. And he says the wisdom from above is pure or clean and peaceable and easy easy to be entreated. It makes sense. It's reasonable. He says that it's full of mercy and good fruits, that it's without hypocrisy. You know, and, and, and he, he paints this completely different picture of a wisdom that comes from God. And he says that the outcome of that wisdom is that there's going to be righteousness or rightness in my life and that that's going to be followed by peace. And so if I live according to the world's wisdom, there's going to be confusion and evil. But if I live according to God's wisdom, then there's going to be rightness and peace. And he holds that out before us and he says, now show us what kind of wisdom you're living according to. Who is wise and endued with knowledge? Let him show it out of that meekness. Now, he takes that same um, thought, and, and James didn't write, okay, that's the close of chapter 3, now chapter 4. This was a letter. It was continual. So as we pick up in chapter 4, it's with that backdrop in mind that there, there, there is a heavenly wisdom and there is an earthly wisdom. There's a heavenly life and there's an earthly life that the Bible calls death. There's a heavenly path that's called the narrow way. There's an earthly path that's called the broad way. And so what he's going to hold up before us here now as we cross into chapter 4 is he's going to hold up before us the, 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 the things that go on among us and the things that go on inside of us and, and how all of that works in light of God's way versus the world's way. And so he begins in verse 1. And he says, from whence or from where come wars and fightings among you. Come they not hence, even from your lusts that war in your members, or war within you, within your bodies, is basically what he's saying there. And so he asks, uh, essentially, he asks 
three questions in this thing that sounds like a, a redundant form of a singular question. The first question, in a very broad sense, from whence cometh wars? Where do wars come from? And then he narrows it in and he basically couples it with the same. He joins the second question to the first and he says, and also fightings among you. And so more specifically, not just wars in general, but now conflicts and strivings within the body of believers. And we all know that there's conflicts amongst the body of believers. I wish there wasn't, uh, but it was true in James' day, and it's true in our day as well, that even though we're Christians, it's still possible for there to be conflicts among us. But then attached to this, there's also a, another layer of things that, that will unfold as we move through the chapter. That word among that he uses there in verse 1, when he says, from whence come wars and fightings among you, the word in the Greek is the word N or E-N. And that word is often translated in the New Testament in or I-N or within. And so carried with the context of this warring or this striving or this conflict is not just the broad sense of conflict, that is world wars or culture wars, and not just Christian wars or the battles that exist within the church, but also the war within, the strife that we have within ourselves, the constant conflict that we ourselves face and feel that is the source of anxiety, the source of stress, the source of um, just trouble within us. Now, I don't know about anybody else here, but I'm assuming I'm not the only one that has internal struggles. That, that I'm not the only one here that doesn't feel sometimes like there's a war that's going on inside my life. I think of the Old Testament character uh, Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. And Isaac takes a wife whose name is Rebekah. And they're married for 20 years and she is barren. She cannot have children. And so Isaac prays for Rebekah and asks God to open her womb. And God answers her prayer and she conceives. And, and it's a blessing from God. It's a celebration for them as it would be for anyone in that situation that experiences that kind of a move of God within their lives. But it says that, that, that Rebecca struggled, that there was a conflict, that there was a war that was going on inside of her. And it caused her to speak out and say, if it be so, if the blessing of God is in this, then why am I thus? Why is there a conflict? Why is there a battle going on inside of me if this is the blessing of God? And so Isaac takes that to the Lord and he says, God, she's wondering why, why there's a wrestling match going on inside of her and I don't know what to tell her. What is it? And the Lord says the issue is this. He says that there are two nations in her womb that are contrary the one to the other. He says one, they're fighting. There's a, there's a, a thing inside that, that one will be stronger than the other, but the older will serve the younger. And he was speaking of Jacob and Esau. Esau would grow up to be the stronger, the man of the world, the firstborn. Jacob would grow up to be the weaker, the spiritual, the one through whom God would bring the Jewish nation into the world, and the younger. 
And so the stronger Esau, who would dominate, would end up serving the younger, which was completely backwards. There was a war that was going on inside of her. There were two natures that were going to be separated from one person. And that same thing, though it was true of her in a physical sense, is true of every single one of us in a spiritual sense. When we are born again, there are two nations alive inside of us. We have the old man that lives according to the affections and lusts and cares of this world. And we have the new man, the Holy Spirit of God and the person of Christ, who is created after the likeness of God for righteousness and holiness. And the two things are contrary to each other. And the result of that is that there's a war within us. And so whether it's a war in the broad sense, or whether it's a war on the Christian plane tucked inside the the walls of the church, or whether it's the conflict that I experience inside when there's a war going on inside of me, James asked the question, and he says, where do wars come from? And he says that the cause of all is from one singular source. He says, do they not come even from your lusts that war or fight within your members? That the root of it all, whether it's inside me, inside the church, or inside the world as a whole, it starts with the lusts that are alive and well inside of my individual life and inside of yours. That that's where it begins. There are desires inside of us that should no longer be there that are the cause of the conflicts that we have. Every conflict that we have. Now, he talks about the progression of that conflict in verse 2. It starts with the lust. He says, you lust. And so a desire will be in our lives. And every single one of us have lusts. We have desires. There are some that have a lust for power. Others have a lust for money. Others have a lust for pleasure. Others have a lust for sex or for relationships. And there are many lusts that manifest themselves amongst the human race in various different ways, but every single one of us is subject to them because we were born into this world. There's not one person that doesn't have it. And so he says it begins with a lust. Sometimes we have a a lust or a desire that isn't necessarily a bad thing something that we want. And it might even be something that God might even want to give us, a desire. He says, but you you have the lust, but you do not have. In other words, the lust is alive, but you don't have the thing that you're lusting for. And he says, then, because you don't have the thing that you want, and because that lust has not been dealt with in a spiritual way, he says, then the lust intensifies to the point where he says, ye kill. Now, I highly doubt that there were instances in the church where there was a Christian that rose up against another Christian and actually, you know, pushed him off a cliff or something uh, because of something that they wanted. I, I think the context of what James is saying here is that, you know, like we say, is that we want something so bad that we would kill for it. You know, we kind of use that phrase. Oh, I want it so bad I'd kill for it. And James is telling us that a lust that's allowed to grow will come to that point where we would be brought to a place where not only would we say those words, but where we would actually do it. He says, you kill and you desire to have, 
and you cannot obtain. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you work for a thing, you cannot get the thing that you're asking for. He says, you fight and you war. You strive and you wrestle, yet you have not. He says that's the condition of the person who has a lust without the fulfillment of that lust. Now, every one of us in this room knows what it's like to feel what James just described. If you don't know what I'm talking about right now, about having a desire for something, and then having that desire grow, and then having that desire become more powerful than we ever thought it could be or wanted it to be, to the point where it's literally driving us insane, if you've never experienced that, then you're free to shut me off for the rest of of the Bible study. But for the rest of the real world that knows exactly what James is talking about here, we're familiar with what that is. We know what it's like to be a child and to have that feeling inside of us when it's just simply a toy or, or, or some possession that we want and we want it so bad that it consumes us. We know what it looks like, many of us never experienced it, but we know what it looks like when the rich and powerful have a lust and they go through this progression to the point where not only can they uh, um, you know, kill and, and destroy, but they actually do it and they'll bring the whole planet to the place of world war in order to have the thing that they want. We understand this in the whole thing. Now, what do we do, what is common for us to do when there is something that we want? We try to get it, Right? And so we'll, we'll, we'll begin with the easy things and then, you know, if it doesn't happen, we'll take it to the next level and we'll continually progress and do more and more and we'll work and we'll go to the height of our ability to try to obtain the things that it is that we want because there's a want, there's a lust. Now, when there's a lust or a desire in my heart, It implies a couple of things that are true universally. Number one, if there's a lust in my heart, it means that there's a void somewhere in my life. There's something that's lacking. There's something that's keeping me from being satisfied. That lust is a testament to me that there's an empty space inside that needs to be filled. Somewhere I'm saying to myself that if only I had this, then I would be happy. And in so saying, I'm saying I'm not happy right now. There's something that's missing within me. It also tells me, if I have a lust like this within my life, that there's something out of whack in my relationship with God. Because the psalmist declared, didn't he, in Psalm chapter 23, verse 1, he said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or I shall not lack. There's not going to be a lust within my life when when God is in his rightful place within my life. And so the, the fact that my relationship is out of whack, listen carefully now, is not because there's a lust unfulfilled within my life that still exists there. That's not why my relationship with God is out of whack. The fact that that lust is there is an indication that that relationship is not in the place where it's supposed to be. And so something's missing. There's a void in my life and my relationship with God is not where it's supposed to be and a lust in my heart is indicative of those two factors and they are always true. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Peter says this. He says, I beseech you, 
then, brothers, as pilgrims and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. When there's a fleshly lust or a worldly lust and I foster it and desire it, I'm entertaining or allowing something in my life that is warring literally against me. And so we, we know what this is. Now, failure to obtain the things that we desire has two reasons. There's two reasons why we, we fail. And neither of the two reasons are because we didn't try uh, to have the thing that it is that we wanted. The first reason that's here that we don't obtain the things that we lust after is very simply sometimes because, he says at the end of verse 2 there, you have not because you ask not. And it stands to reason, doesn't it, that if I'm out of fellowship with God, then I'm not going to be going to him to obtain the things that I need. It stands also to reason that if I'm desiring something that I already know God isn't going to give me and that he doesn't want for my life, then why would I ask it of him? And so I'm not asking these things of God. Now, asking is the currency of heaven. It's the currency of the kingdom. And the Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from above. It comes from the Father of lights. It comes from God. And so therefore, if anything valuable is going to be added unto my life, it's going to come from God. And God says that the means of obtaining those things that are good for you and necessary are going to come through prayer or come through asking. In John chapter 3, verse 27, John the Baptist was approached by some of his followers and, and they, they were saying to him, hey, you know, this young rabbi Jesus has more followers than you do. There's more men following him now than are following your ministry. And John's reply to those men that came to him seeking to stir up a conflict, to stir up a lust within John to want to have a greater influence than Jesus himself, John's wise reply to those men that came to him was this. He said, a man can receive nothing except it is given to him from above. In other words, he's saying, listen, if Jesus has more followers than I do, then that's not a, a, a factor based upon uh, who's the better preacher. But rather, he's saying that there's a higher authority that has caused that to take place. A man can receive nothing except it's given to him from above. And that's not only true about the followers of the Son of God, but that's true about everything in your life and in mine. We can truly receive nothing that's of lasting value unless it's given to us from above. And so therefore, if we want to receive, the Bible says that we must ask. When Jesus taught us to pray, what did he say? He said, when you pray, say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, if something isn't ratified or released or sanctioned in heaven's court, then it will never be, it will never stand, it will never exist in earth's court. It must be from heaven to earth. And so, for the Christian, it's impossible for you and I to break the relationship that exists between heaven and earth, and so therefore anything that's not ours in heaven will not be ours on earth. And the proper means of obtaining in God's economy is by asking. In Luke chapter 11, Verses 9 and 10, Jesus said, I say unto you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. 
For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks it shall be opened. And so the asking is essential when it comes to obtaining in the kingdom of God. And Jesus lived by that rule just the same. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, the messianic psalm that prophesied concerning the ministry of Christ, the Father said to the Son, He said, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations, or the heathen, for your inheritance. So even the fulfilled ministry of Christ was the byproduct of the asking and of the receiving. And therefore, the Bible says that you have not, first of all, because you ask not. Okay, so does that mean that every time I ask God for something, that automatically He's going to grant the request that I have made and He's going to say yes to everything that I ask because I've asked? Is that the only reason I don't have? Because I haven't asked or I haven't asked enough or I haven't asked the right way? No. God is a Father. And therefore, when we ask, he answers our prayers in one of three ways. Sometimes he answers in the affirmative. He says, yes, we ask, he gives, and we move on, and the issue's done. And sometimes things go that way. It's as simple as God. All I had to do was ask, and he says, yeah, I wanted you to check in. I wanted to hear your voice. And you asked, and here you go. Sometimes the answer to God's prayer is wait. He just says, wait, I do that to my kids all the time. I have this strange male thing going, and I have it, I think, a little bit worse than every other male, and that is one voice at a time. And there's six other voices in, 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 in my house, aside from the 50 that are constantly talking in my own head. And then the kitchen sink has a voice if I'm standing there doing dishes. And, you know, Pandora that's playing in the background has a voice. And then the clanging of whatever, you know, some of the younger kids are doing has a voice. All these voices. And sometimes one of the kids will say, Dad, and all I hear is, and I just go, whoa, wait. You know, especially if, if George is talking to me or if, you know, if there's something, just wait, just wait. I'll get to that in about two days. or if I have to hear it right away I have to just close my eyes and every other voice I just have to put it in its own little box and just zero in on that and I hear dad one more time you know that's not why God says wait I guess that's a bad illustration you know he, he, he's not too busy for us, but, but I, I say it so, so you can relate to the idea of waiting, you know. But sometimes God says, wait, why? Because sometimes it's God's full intent to give us the thing that we're asking for, but the timing of our ask is off. Or, sometimes God looks at what we're asking, He considers it as a father, and He says, I would like to do that for you, But for me to do that right now would be out of order. And there's a few things that I have to do in your life and around your life before I can give positive uh, um, giving on that that thing that you've asked of me. And so I'm going to tell you to wait because there's a couple things that have to happen before I answer that prayer. And so sometimes God says, wait. And sometimes, believe it or not, we ask of God and God says, no. He says, that I'm not going to grant that request. You can ask it in Jesus' name. You know, you could ask it claiming faith. You could ask it quoting scripture. You can come up with the best case for why I should do that for you. And my answer for your life in this thing is no, and it's going to be no, and that's never going to change. You say, wow, he's tough. 
No. He's good. Because the Bible says in Psalm chapter 84, verse 11, the Bible says that he will withhold no good thing from those that walk uprightly. And so what that means is that if God chooses to withhold something from my life, it's because in his infinite wisdom, he sees that that something that I'm asking for is not something good. It will be a detriment to my future. And so he says, no. And he doesn't answer that prayer in the affirmative. So sometimes we ask and we receive. Sometimes we ask and we don't receive the whole thing. But when we don't ask, then we can have no hope of obtaining the thing that we ask for, even if we can wrestle it into our lives temporarily. If it's not ratified in heaven, it will not be in our lives lastingly. So when we don't ask, one of these things is true. Either we're out of fellowship with God, who's the source of all things, or we don't ask because we don't believe that he can or is willing to do the things that we're asking for, or we've chosen the path of independence. We've chosen that, God, I want this, but I don't need you for it. I can go out and I can do it myself. And any one of those things will result in a very bad outcome within our lives. I've observed something, and I'll share it with you. This is wisdom um, beyond my years. I've seen it in my own life, and I've seen it in other people's as well. Is that God will establish for a man or for a woman a certain income. Or maybe a certain level of something, you know, a level of uh, professional advancement or something. But, but God kind of, in his wisdom and in his work in our lives, he, he just establishes it, he ordains it in heaven, that, that such and such a person is going to make between forty and $60,000 a year at this point in their life. And he just kind of puts, puts us in that bracket and he says, this is what I'm supplying for you right now. This is where you need to be for your best good. And I've seen a person that says, I'm not content with that. I want to do better. There's other, there's other people that do more. I know I'm worth more. I can do better. And so they go out and they strive and they obtain and they do what they have to do in order to bring themselves to that next level. And so they get there. They, they, they break that 60,000 barrier. They move in and they make $70,000. And you know what I've seen? I've seen then the car breaks down. The hot water tank explodes. The roof leaks or a tree falls on something. The deductible has to be paid. And when everything comes out at the end of the year, guess where they ended up? They ended up between forty and $60,000 a year. Why? Because that's where God has ordained for them to be in this season of their life. On the converse side of that, I've also seen the person that doesn't strive, that doesn't say, I'm going to go out and do more because I want to do better. And they have a tough year. And so they only make $32,000 that year in what they do. And somehow, when they add things up at the end of that year, God, through his grace, supplied, somebody died and left them some money, and they somehow were brought into that forty dollars to $60,000. I've just seen it over and over and over again. You say, well, so what does that mean? Does that just give up? No. It means ask of God. It doesn't mean that that's where he maybe wants you for the rest of your life, wherever you are. I'm a manager, but I want to be a district manager. And is that impossible? Is that God? No, no, no. Ask of God. Because who knows that he doesn't want to bring you way beyond. The Bible says that he does beyond what we could ask, think, or even imagine. That according to his grace and the riches of his grace, his desire is that we be the head and not the tail. But there's a process. And character and process is more important to God than simply the outcome. And the means of seeing ourselves advance in whatever thing we're looking for is to ask 
He says you have not because you ask not. There's a second reason why we don't receive. In verse 3, he says, you ask and receive not. So you've prayed, you've brought it to God, but God has answered no, he hasn't done it. And he says that the reason for that is because you ask amiss that you might consume it upon your lusts. In other words, my prayer has missed the mark of what is righteous. I've asked amiss. Now, the context of this amiss is not necessarily a matter of motive, why I've asked it. That might not be the issue at all. God looks at our prayer and he says, well, you asked me for that, but why are you asking me for that? Sometimes it's not a matter of motive. Sometimes our motive could be okay with God, but he still says no and says it's a mess. Sometimes a mess doesn't mean the subject of what we're praying for, the object that we're praying for. God, I want that woman, or God, I want that position, you know, and, and God just says, well, you just want that for yourself. Sometimes that's not, that's not the issue at all. It might be completely in the will of God, and yet that prayer can still be amiss. What it means to ask and ask amiss, it means that I'm asking God for something, but I'm asking God for something when the position of my heart is not in a right relationship with him. If the position of my heart is not in the right relationship with him, I could be praying for the very thing that he wants to do with my life and he's not going to do that thing in my life at that time. Because in his mercy and in his love, he is not going to let me succeed in the purpose of my life independent of him. And to ask amiss has its root in the fact that my life is not sanctified or, or set apart completely for him. He's somewhere in my life. He might be a means to an end that I want to accomplish, but he is not the end of what I want to accomplish. And therefore, I'm asking amiss this thing within my life. In my heart, the truth is I'm not interested in God. I'm not really interested in his will or his interests for me. I'm only interested in getting what I think and what I want, and he's the way that I'm going to get that done. And so I'm going to ask him. And he says, you're asking amiss. In, uh, on things. And so ultimately, when we come to the conclusion of, of, of the answer to James' question, he asked a question. He says, from whence come wars and, and fightings, conflicts among you and within you? Every conflict that comes, what is the source of that conflict and that war? The answer is singular. The answer is one. Here's what it is. It comes down to one thing, is that my life is not in a right relationship with God as it should be as a Christian. That something is out of whack and out of place in my relationship with him and I'm out of harmony with God. And so he addresses the condition of that as he moves on in verse 4. And, and you gotta, um, you know, give James some space here. He tells it like it is. But the Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. He says, you adulterers and adulteresses. Now, the idea behind this is not in the physical sense of going out on your marriage or out on your spouse. He's speaking of this in the spiritual context. The Bible says that we are married to God. We're the bride of Christ. And when there is a higher affection in my life or in my heart that takes the place of God within my life, I have become a spiritual adulterer or a spiritual adulteress. If there is a greater love in my life than the Lord... 
then I'm in adultery in a spiritual sense. Because the Bible says that he is to be my first love. And so James says that's the issue here, is that there's something that you want in your life higher than what God uh, is supposed to be within your life. And then he, he defines that by saying this. He says, know ye not that the friendship of the world, or to be friends with the world, or in bed with the world, is enmity, or to be at enmity, or to be an enemy of God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. You say, what does he mean by friendship in the world? In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, we get the definition and the understanding. John writes and he says this. He says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. In other words, anything that I can look at as a lust or a desire of my flesh, something that I want to satisfy the the inclinations of my sinful nature. Also, the lust of the eyes, the things that draw draw me away, they they capture my affections and my attention, the lusts that that, that my eyes are, are drawn to, the things that I look at, not just with my physical eyes, but with the eyes of my heart. And then also the pride of life, the desire to attain, the, attire, the desire to achieve, the, the desire to, um, to, 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 to rise up and to usurp. All of those things, the pride of life, he says, those things are not of the Father, but they're of the world. And the world is passing away and the lusts of it. But he that does the will of God will abide forever. And so friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And the idea is that if I will place a worldly desire, whether it be a lust of my flesh, of my eyes, or of my pride, but if I place those things in my ambition, and I place those things in my ambition in the place that God alone is supposed to hold, then I have become an adulterer And I have made myself a friend of the world. And so I'm out of harmony in my relationship with God. He goes on to say in verse 5, Do you think that the scripture says in vain, or for nothing, that the spirit that dwells in us lusteth to envy? Now, what he's talking about there is when the Bible says, where God says of himself that he is a jealous God. God says that concerning himself throughout the Old Testament. He says, I'm a jealous God. What does that mean? Does it mean that God looks at my life and he says, I'm jealous of you? I'm jealous of what you have? I'm jealous of your abilities and your talents? That would be foolish. We're made by him. Everything we have comes from him. He can't be jealous of anything that we have. So what is God jealous for? God is jealous for two things. Number one, he's jealous for our affection. God wants our affection towards himself. Now I want you to stop and just think about that for just a moment. God wants you to love him. And the strength of that want in the heart of God is so strong that he defines it in the terms that he lusteth to envy for our highest affections. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 8, What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? 
What is it that's in us that would cause God to long for fellowship with us? I don't have an answer for you. But it makes me marvel when I realize who I am and who He is. When I think of how vast and how broad and how big and how strong He is. And I think of what I am in my life. And to think that God places value on my love towards Him, it blows my mind. It's way beyond what I can comprehend. You say, what in the world, God, would you, what interest would you have in it? And God says, my interest is not for me. The Bible says that he is sufficient in and of himself. He is not lacking anything. He's missing nothing. Here's why it bothers God when I have an affection in my life that, that is placed higher than him. Because he knows that ultimately the place where I'm going to find the most satisfaction in my life is when he is first in my life. It's not for his sake that he desires our affection, though it is. He enjoys us. He delights in us. But it's also for our sake. Our greatest life is when he's first in our life. And he wants to do what's good for us. God created us on purpose and God created us for a purpose. The Bible says that he has before ordained good works that we should walk in them. God has foreordained blessing and substance within our lives. The things that he's desiring to do and that he wants to do within our lives. But he knows that the only way those things can come to pass is that if he is first and highest in us. Any other way, it cannot happen. Or we would ruin the things that he wants to do. We'd sabotage the entire plan. And so he desires not only our affection, but he desires to bestow upon us his goodness. And he knows it has to be God first in our life in order for him to do that. And if it's not, he's hindered in the cause and it causes grief and frustration in the heart of God. The spirit that dwells in us lusteth to envy. Here's the good news, verse 6. But he giveth more grace. In other words, he's willing to still give grace. If you're still alive, you haven't sinned yourself or divided your heart to the point where God is done with you. He's still willing to give grace. There's hope for the person that's here tonight that can honestly say, God, there's things that I love more than I love you in my life. God, my heart is divided and the lesser part is yours. I confess it. There is grace still available to that person. There's hope still available for that person. Wherefore, this is why he saith, God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. And so the question that remains on the bottom line of all of this is how do I then bring my life back into the place where God is first and I'm in harmony with him so that his will can be performed and fulfilled within my life? How do I get to that place? He tells us in verse 7. He says, first of all, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Do you know what that means, to submit yourself to God? It means to cast yourself upon the altar of his mercy, grace, and provision, and will. It means that I am laying down my list of desires, and I'm saying, God, I submit to whatever it is that you want for my life and from my life, and I will be content with whatever you give me. That's what it means to submit to God. His will be done. I love the story in John chapter 4 of the woman who came to Jesus at the well. Actually, she didn't know she was coming to Jesus. She bumped into him by chance, but nothing is by chance. 
And the woman came at noon. She was reproach. Nobody came at noon. She was ostracized and didn't want to be seen by the other women and the other servants that would come to the well. And as she came to Jesus, she got into this discussion with him. And in the process of things, Jesus revealed who he was to the woman. And in the process of all that, he revealed that he was the Messiah, the Savior. And in that process, he became her Savior. And there's a little detail in the narrative of that text that most people just read right over. But when you see it, it jumps out at you like a sore thumb. You know what it says? It says that she left her water pot at the well. And she returned to the village to tell the men and women of the village about the Messiah that she had met. That's a remarkable thing that happened there. I see a lot of people that come to Jesus with their empty bucket. They come to him and they say, Lord, this is what I'd like to see in my life. And, and, and if you look and you notice that this part's supposed to have this and this part's supposed to have this. And for this bucket to be full, it needs to have this in it and this in it. And this holds this much volume. And God, I just see that it's empty right now and you need to fill this. And Lord, what are you doing in my life? But when that person has an encounter with Jesus and they see him for who he is and they receive him for what he is, And the substance of his love because of the substance of satisfaction within their life. You know what they do with their bucket? Ding, 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 ding. Lord, you know, why would I want a bucket when I have the well? To submit to God is to throw your bucket down the well. Say, I don't need this bucket anymore. God, if it's never your will for me to make more than $40,000, I'd rather have your will and your presence in my life than any dollar amount that you could give. Lord, if it's not your will for me to obtain this thing that I've wanted my whole life, then let me be satisfied in you alone. Let your presence in my life, let your peace, let your voice, let the plan and the thing that you have ordained for me to have, Lord, let that be my life and my substance. And I will be satisfied with what you give. And you know what I've learned? I've learned that God gives his best to those that leave the choice with him. Submit to God. Stop trying to obtain. Lay down your arms and submit to God and His will for your life. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Then secondarily, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, the order there is very important. If we resist the devil without submission to God, we've accomplished a net zero. Submission to God is first. Secondarily, the Bible says that we're to resist the devil. The Bible says that the same spirit that raised up Christ from the dead dwells in us. I want you to think about the power of the spirit that raised up Christ from the dead. And that same spirit dwells in us. That's the same spirit that stood up to Satan in a desert after 40 days of being tempted and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's the same spirit that stood up to Satan and said, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It's the same spirit that rose up and said, It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And the same spirit that saw and then penned the words in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, where it says that Satan fled from him or departed from him for a season. That spirit lives in you and I. And what that means is that God gives us the power to resist the temptation that Satan plays upon our lusts in order to get us to fulfill. And the command that we're given by James and that's ratified by Christ is that we have the power to resist Satan in our lives. 
So few Christians employ that power. We are so quick to give in as he plays upon those things. All we need to do is stand. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Then in verse 8, he says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Get back into close fellowship with God. Get back near to him again. And don't check out and leave. So many people, they pray and they ask God to do something in their life. And God gives them the wait response. He says, wait, I'm going to do something and make you ready for this. And then he starts doing things in their life. He tips their cup upside down. He prunes a branch off their tree. And we go, oh God, what are you doing? I prayed that you'd bless me. And And all the while, God is preparing you and I for the very thing that we ask for. But do you know what our tendency is when we feel that pain? We say, no, I'm not praying anymore. I see what that got me the first time I tried it. I'm not doing it. No, no, no. God's in the process of answering your prayer in the best possible way. This is good for you. Stand in there. Don't draw away from God. Draw near to God. The worst thing you can do when you're starting to feel the pressure of things is to draw back. You're regressing. No, press in. Draw near. Keep praying. Keep asking. Keep persisting because you'll keep changing. It's good for you. He says then further, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Allow the Holy Spirit of God to shine his searchlight on those things that we've allowed to creep into our behavior that are a detriment to his work within our lives. They're defiling our hands. The Bible says in Job chapter 17 verse 9 that whoever has clean hands will get stronger and stronger. And so God's desire for us is not to weaken us through cleanliness. It's to strengthen us. So cleanse your hands. Repent of the things that you know aren't right within your heart. And then he says, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now the difference between cleansing and purifying is that when you're cleansing something, you're simply washing off the defilement that's on the surface. But when you're purifying something, you're taking a substance that has foreign substances mixed in with it and you're removing the foreign substances and purifying it so that it becomes a single substance. And so if we're going to apply that to our hearts, what he's saying is that, listen, your heart is divided. Part of your heart belongs to the Lord, but part of it belongs to money. Part belongs to the Lord, but the other part longs for position. And he's saying, purify your heart. Bring it to God and say, God, if this desire that I have is not of you, then burn it out and take it away. Let my heart be purified so that the only thing that's left when you're done is that I belong to only you singularly, that there's no other affection within my life. Purify my heart, God. Refine me. Make me completely yours. Then in verse 9, be afflicted and mourn. Realize the condition that you're in if you're out of harmony with God. Weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and let your joy be turned into heaviness. Ultimately, he says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. What parent or father or mother doesn't respond to humility in a child? I mean, one of my kids comes to me with a humble attitude, and they say, oh, Dad, I blew it in this instant. I I really, the way that I responded to you or the way that I treated uh, one of my siblings or or the way, it was completely wrong. 
and I'm sorry. Oh my goodness. You know what happens when that when my arms are down and my, my face changes, my pupils go from vertical back to normal. You know, everything, everything in me just settles. And I say, oh, I am so glad. Now we can move on from here. Or if they come and, and, and they, they're going to ask for something and they come with humility. They come in that, that place of just, you know, I, I know that, that I don't deserve. I know that, you know, you do a lot. I understand what goes into running a household. And, and, and so when I'm asking you this, I'm understanding that in the context of, of everything that's going on. Man, you start to hear, what do you want? I thought, I thought you can have $2,000? Okay, you got it. You want to go to summer camp the whole summer? You're there. You're in, you know. You ask me like that, you can have anything you want. God responds the same way. It says he resists the proud. He puts up a barrier and you're not getting through that barrier. But he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And you know what God's going to do? When God is pressing down and we feel that pressure and we say, okay, God, I'm just going to relax the muscles and let the pressure of that hand just crush me. Do you know what he does? He goes, He catches us and he lifts us up. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. You don't want the hand of God over your life. You want the hand of God under your life. And the way that you get there is through humility. Humble yourself. Realize, God, there's something amiss. My relationship with you is out of whack and I humble myself before you. And you know what happens? The inside war between me and God ends in terms of peace, have been brought up. How do we have peace between man and man? He says in verse 11, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you that judges Another. Listen, he says, your attitude towards God is to be one of humility and singularity. But your attitude towards men is to be one of charity and of face value acceptance. He's saying, listen, when it comes to your relationships with one another, don't judge each other. Don't look at each other's lives and try to figure out why they're doing what they're doing or why they're saying what they're saying or look for the evil motive behind what they're doing. He's saying, listen, understand this. If you have good intentions behind the things that you do and they're misunderstood, then give someone else the benefit of the doubt that even though what they're doing or saying might seem to be amiss or not right, they probably have good intentions behind what they're doing too. And if you were in their shoes, you'd probably do the same thing. He's saying, listen, God is the judge. He's the one that will sift through the motives. He calls us to love. Give people that space to do that. And then finally, in verse 13 through the end, our relationship with this world. What is our relationship with this world to be? He says, Go to now, you that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there for a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. For what you ought to say is if the Lord will we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings and all such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knows to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. You say, is James condemning those that 
embark on business enterprises or those that plan for the future in terms of their provision? Absolutely not. The Bible says that we should plan. The Bible has much to say about stewardship and preparing our way out in the field. When you read the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, constantly we're being exhorted by God to, to, to look to the, to the future. And, and even investing is of God. You read Ecclesiastes and you come to the conclusion. That's not what's being condemned here. What's being condemned is a very, very simple ingredient in the planning process. And that is this. The will of God. Am I saying, is the position of my heart, God, if it be your will, this is what I desire to do. This is my plan. This is what I, 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 I'd hope to see happen in my life. But if it's not your will, God, I'm fine with it. For me to operate in my life independent of the will of God is absolutely, very definitely sin. The outcome will never be good. But for me to just very simply make that small adjustment of saying, God, I want your will above everything else in my life. And this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'd like to do. And this is the direction that I'm going with things. But if at any time you desire to interrupt that or change the course of it or you want to do things or take something a different way, then God, I want what you want above what I want for my life. And then to be open to that <laughs> if that interruption or, or that change of direction comes. That's to be the attitude that we're to have in things of this world. And so what is James telling us in chapter 4? He's saying, listen, there are going to be wars in this world there's going to be wars within the church, conflicts amongst people, and there's going to be an internal war that exists between, within the heart of a human life. And we all understand the context of all three of those things. But here's what James is saying to you and me by the Spirit of God tonight. And it's what the Spirit of God is saying to us right here and now. He's saying this. He's saying, if you and I will come to the place where we're willing to humble ourselves before God and submit to His will and His plan for our lives in every way and for everything that he desires for us to have, then we'll have drawn up terms of peace with God and what was amiss will come back into harmony and we'll be in a right place with God where he can now exalt us in due time and in due process. He's also telling us here tonight that if we can look at the person in the church or the body of Christ that we have conflict with and we can give that person the benefit of the doubt, and we can forbear with the things about them we don't like and forgive the things that we think that they've done or that they have done, and we can release them from all debt and guilt and burden, then the war between brothers in the church, sisters in the church, will cease automatically and war will be changed into peace. And he's saying that if we can get our relationship with this world right and in a right place, wherein we're willing to say, God, this is what I'd like to see happen in my life, and this is the direction my feet are aiming, but your will be done, not mine. Then the path to get where we're going will be a path of peace. And so I ask you as the worship team comes and we close our service tonight, where is the war raging in your life right now? Are you like Rebecca saying, if the blessing of God is such if the Spirit of God is in my life, then why am I thus? Why am I constantly striving? Why am I constantly fighting? Why do I constantly feel like I'm running, but that running is like the running of a treadmill? I'm not getting anywhere, and I end up right back where I was again. That everything I do just seems like it's met with failure when I'm supposed to be living in a life of success. 
When my face in church is as though everything is all right, but on the inside I know that everything's not right. And then I'm hoping that the situation is going to catch up with my face and not with what really I'm feeling. Is that you here tonight? God is saying this. It's simple. It's as simple as submission. It's as simple as casting ourselves upon his will and saying, God, what you want for my life, just do it. God, if you want me to be poor and destitute, just do it. Only give me Christ. God, if you want me to never have the thing that I want to have, then take that desire from me and replace it with something that's better that is your will. Only give me Christ. And I lay down my life for whatever it is, for all that it is. Be first in my life. Submit to God. As we close tonight, I'm going to step down from the platform, but if the Holy Spirit has spoken in some way, and you find that tonight you're under the hand of God, and you would desire that you would be over the hand of God, the altar is open. Nothing magical about this place, nothing magical about these steps. But it's a physical way for me to acknowledge before God that I humble myself before your presence. And this God is the thing that I need to leave at the foot of the cross. This is the wrestling match that's been going on inside of me. This is the strife that tonight I would like to end and I would like God to declare terms of peace with you at the foot of a cross where my sin was poured into the earth. And that's just an opportunity for you tonight to make your way during this last song. If you want to come, spend a moment, lay something at the foot of the Lord, then go back to your seat and we, as we can, you know, finish and conclude the song. That's open to you, but let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for what you can do in a life. So take the things that we've heard here. Take the things that you've spoken the words that have been penned so long ago that hold so true today. And may they be applied to our lives in such a way, God, that no longer would your spirit be striving with us in a spirit of envying for something that we refuse to give you. But Lord, that we might let the floodgates of your love pour into our hearts and that this bucket that we carried in here tonight to have fold would be cast into the well of your love and goodness. Have your way, O Lord. Have your own way. Tear it out of our hands. And do your will for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.